today I've sat down with the Reverend William Ruddle. We've had a really good conversation about his property portfolio, how he has grown that over the last 15 years, and how his faith has really played a big part in the, the moral decisions, the ethical decisions that he's taken to, to deal with his portfolio, to deal with the tenants um, over those last 15 years. Had a really good conversation on how he sees the market as a real good opportunity to invest now, and this is the best time he has seen since the 2008 crash for property investors to get involved. I know you're really gonna love this conversation. Get involved, leave us some comments below, and with that said, I will leave you with the Reverend William Ruddle. Hi William, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Hope you're well this morning. Very well, thank you, Michael. Excellent. So I think a really good place for us to start is um, to get a bit of an overview of um, what you, you do in your day-to-day -day life and um, how that kind of come about for you. So I guess I'm probably uh, not typical of most buy-to-let uh, landlords in the fact that I'm also a church minister. Um, I mean, church ministers are often encouraged to have one property because they move between church properties. Uh, but uh, we've turned this into something of a business over the last uh, 15, 20 years. Um, so I'm a, a full-time minister. I'm currently a chaplain to the police and a, I guess what you would call a medium to large size portfolio of properties. Excellent. Okay. So obviously that, that is like you say, it's a, it's a different um, career to what typically um, correlates with, with buy-to-lets and, and things like that. How was it you got started in that kind of industry, so to speak? Well, my father, who was a banker, he had a couple of buy-to-let properties long, long, long time before buy-to-let was even coined as a phrase. Back in the uh, early 90s, he had a couple. Um, and uh, so I guess I'd always seen property as being something of an investment vehicle. And then uh, when my wife and I were going to marry, uh, we knew that the first five years of our married life, we were going to be in tired accommodation. So uh, we, we actually married and we never lived in it. So our very first property as a married couple was buy to let and it kind of has snowballed from there as we've moved around the country we've tended to acquire property okay and what it you you kind of got ordained into the into the church so i was ordained in 2001 so i've been a full-time minister now for 19 years i guess 18 19 years um, and we've been doing property a similar kind of length of time. We got married in 99. So it's about 20 years we've been in, in and out of the market, mainly. Mm. Yeah, and what kind of um, drew you to, to that career then in, in the church? What, what kind of um, got you involved in that? Because once again, I think you're a, a qualified lawyer, or that was what you, you trained as at university. Yeah, my, so my, my first degree is in law, uh, and I thought I was going to be a lawyer, and really um, I, I came to personal faith when I was about 16, uh, put my faith in Jesus, and really that changed, started to change who I was, and so I started moving away from commercial into kind of thinking I might do social law or housing law, and then I had a family incident where my brother and my father both died within six months of each other, and I was only 18 at the time, 19, and it really made you know, hey, actually, what's my life about? What do I really want to do? Is it about getting a million quid in the bank or is life about more than that? Um, and it was then I started sensing that call to serve people and care for people. Um, I always said growing up that I wanted to be a doctor in the morning, a builder in the afternoon and an ambulance driver in the evening. And I kind of have that life now. Um, I, I spend my days, kitchens, and, and that's great. I have part of my brain that is just made for business and for buying and selling. I ran my first business when I was 13, buying and selling computers from our bedroom. Um, and so it's kind of gone from there. And I guess the driving the ambulance thing is, um, if I get four hours sleep a night, that's about average. Obviously, um, the, the job that you have comes with um, a certain level of ethics and morality attached to it. Is that something that um, has guided you in your property business as well as, I guess, your life in general? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't say it's my job, it's, it's my values as being a Christian. The fact that I'm a minister, uh, sh should just mean that um, it's my day job. But for all Christians, there should be ethics and morality in the way they do everything. Um, for me, it's always been really important to, uh, there's a basic principle, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And uh, I try and carry that over into all areas of my life, relationships, including business, the way I would expect to be treated if I was in their boat. Um, I always remember my father saying to me that he would never rent a property he wasn't prepared to live in himself. 
Now that, that doesn't mean all my properties are penthouse suites and up to the highest standard, but I won't rent a property that isn't good, clean, everything works, fully serviced, no damp, those kind of basic things that every human being should have a right to decent quality housing. It also makes good business sense, by the way. So I think the, um, the buy-to-let and the, the landlord industry is getting a lot of focus on, on that at the moment, the quality of the housing, the, the rogue landlord kind of culture um, that's out there. Um, I was uh, reading an article yesterday about how HMO landlords are the, the new target of the PPI, um, ambulance chasers, um, those that are not licensed and all of this. Um, from, there was a court case recently where some student tenants in a HMO were paid out £15,000 from their landlord because he wasn't licensed. So there seems to be some um, some big money to be made against landlords at the moment. Next question really, William, is you started uh, you started investing in property um, in the early 2000s and were quite active around the credit crunch. Um, lots of properties were being repossessed at the time. How does, um, obviously, the available properties being repossessions that would be good to purchase fit with the kind of morality and ethics of the day job so to speak well i guess i mean in a sense it's a fair question to ask i mean but by the time the properties came on the market the the morality issue of whether or not they were going to be repossessed had already been made by somebody else um by the time they came to me they were already empty and they were being sold having already been repossessed um Yes, yeah, I, I mean, that, 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 that's a very, very fair point. It, was, it wasn't the kind of yourself making the decision, was it? In, in, in essence, I guess, as the buyer, you were, you were releasing um, the person that was repossessed from the problem that, that they've faced. Yeah, and I mean, I paid fair market value, whatever that fair market value was at that point. Um, we've tended to be, when we've been landlords, we've been extremely lenient with tenants who've been behind in their rent. As long as we can see a pathway out. Yes, yeah, I think that's a, a a key thing to kind of look at as well. There are some landlords that run run their portfolios in, in quite a militant way, i.e., um, the, the sooner as they're able to get people out of a property um, due to mispayments or late payments or things like that, they're they're kind of pulling the trigger on on that process. Whereas, um, I, I guess, having a more lenient and, and human view on that things can go wrong in people's lives and, and helping them through can maybe help manage your portfolio in, in the long term and, and keep people in a much a much better kind of tenant in the long term well what we, what we find is that um i mean over our portfolio over the 15 years i did some calculations before we started and i have about a 98 and a half percent occupancy rate okay so we have an, we are almost non-existent on voids and partly that's down to how we manage at the beginning of a tenancy uh, the speed mm. at which we get people in but secondly it's also because as long as people communicate with us and we can see the situation they're in and we can see a pathway out then normally it's actually in our interest and the tenant's interest to remain in the house because there's a lot of dead money for a tenant in moving from one property to another and there's a lot of dead money for landlords in the cost of eviction void rest restoration of a property and then reletting so it's actually, there's a mutual interest sometimes in saying, okay, you're six weeks behind in your rent. You're going to be, you know, you've made a, a universal credit application. I know what figure you're going to get. Um, you're going to be running behind with your rent for six, eight weeks. But frankly, I'll take a six week arrears over uh, all the costs involved in, in trying to evict you. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, that talking about universal credit, this is a, an issue that, um, is facing a lot of landlords that the policy is to pay it in arrears. Um, I was speaking to a, a lettings director yesterday um, and he was saying that, that they have very few um, tenants who, who are getting it, um, but some are in a tenancy when things go wrong for them. So then it, it kind of comes into play and having landlords that are understanding that at best the rent is going to be a couple of weeks late every month because it's paid in arrears and from the example you've just given six weeks um, I, I would say that those are a couple of weeks are able to fund the first one without the the universal credit so yeah that understanding from the landlord's point of view is, is quite important otherwise you're going to end up with a government policy that's been forced upon people and it's a policy that's in the media all the time as being broken um, oh, I, I agree. I mean, on people's lives. I still think universal credit is broken. I don't think it's a fair or a just system. 
um, and it penalizes uh, certain families who are in extremely difficult circumstances. But that said, um, whether they were on housing benefit or universal credit, and I want to say only about a third of my portfolio is um, social, uh, you know, housing benefit. Uh, the majority are uh, professionals, but those that are uh, on universal credit, they also understand the predicament they are in. And if you've got a decent human being who happens to struggle financially, they are desperate to keep the roof over their head. They are uh, really quite um, supportive as a landlord. Um, and I found them to be uh, good long-term clients. Yes, yeah. And to achieve 98.5% occupancy, obviously as a landlord, you're doing something right because if you're not looking after the tenants, there is property available out there. So people will, yeah. will move. It's fairly easy, especially now the removal of um, application fees, tenant fees. Um, it's very easy for people to move. Um, there's even locally to where we are i say i don't know if it's being run nationally um schemes where you don't pay the deposit but you pay an extra amount a month to make the deposit up um and then that's held so you don't need the lump sum to get into the property so yeah holding on to people and avoiding boys is important in our area the council will for certain clients the kind that we will take on housing benefit they, the council will uh, privately fund the deposit and the first month's rent up front uh, okay. knowing that so they will they will fund that up front and also interestingly i uh, i have a property in colchester where they were using a i guess a third party agency but not only did they uh, fund the deposit and the first month's rent they also gave a goodwill uh, figure of 750 pounds and if i keep them after 12 months another 750 wow that's um that's really interesting that the kind of local authorities are going that far with things so obviously you've been investing in property for what, 19 years approximately. Um, there must have been some, some real successes in that time and I'm sure some, shall we call them, lessons learned across, across that period of time. What would you say, what sure. would you say are the, the kind of biggest, let's call them lessons, that you've had over that period? Okay, so I guess that the, the, the biggest uh, lesson that I've learned is that uh, particularly on lower value properties, which is what we tend to be buying. So most of our properties are worth under 200 uh, and a significant number are worth 125 or less, um, mm -hmm. is uh, you must remember that maintenance costs are disproportionate on smaller properties to larger ones. And uh, that I learned the very hard way. I mean, effectively, a handyman charges you the same to change a tap, whether he's changing it on a five-bedroom house or a two-bedroom terrace. And yes. so you have to allow much greater percentage for maintenance on, a, on the smaller portfolios. And that's where the portfolio either becomes highly profitable or um, quite expensive, is if you've got good local tradesmen who understand the value of repeat work, understand the importance of being responsive uh, to, to the landlord phoning them because there's more work coming down the line. And, you know, as I always say, wants to take their pound of flesh, not their kilo of flesh. You know, mm -hmm. because uh, everyone's got to earn a day's living. I get that. Uh, but what you don't want is a tradesman who thinks, oh, I'm going to, this is my golden goose and I'm going to um, squeeze this one for as much as I possibly can. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's um, a theme that comes up quite a lot when I'm talking to property investors. Um, the, the kind of buzzword would be um, that power team that you work with. But the reality is it, it's just relationships with people, isn't it? And, and you, you need those good working relationships and trust with, like you say, your local tradesmen that are going to treat you fairly and do a good job in the knowledge that they'll have a long-term working relationship with you rather than looking for that, that quick win. Um, and one of, uh, one, of the things I'd say around, one of the things I'd say around that, Michael, um, it's a really simple thing. And for most landlords who manage their portfolios well, this should be obvious. Talking to tradesmen, it's amazing the number that don't get this. When I get an invoice in from a tradesman, and he'll normally send it to me at the end of that day, I pay it within the hour, not within mm -hmm. the week or the month, and certainly not three months. I pay them immediately, unless I can't get onto my mobile banking app. They are paid straight away, and I text them and say, paid with thanks. And that yes. means that when you're then going to call them at four o'clock in the morning because there's a broken pipe somewhere, He's thinking, okay, I'm going to turn out of bed. I'm going to go and fix this. And I know William's going to have paid me by lunchtime so I can take my wife out or I can go and buy that TV or whatever it is they need to do in their lives. That, that rapid payment, a number of my uh, tradesmen have said how crucially important that has been for them. And actually for me as a landlord, I mean, you should be running a, a decent uh, kind of running balance that you can afford to pay people immediately. 
Mm, yeah, and I, I think it's that awareness as well that most tradesmen um, that are going to be doing maybe the handyman jobs aren't going to be coming um, out to you from large companies. They, they could be one-man band um, enterprises. And Absolutely. That, that fast payment, that cash flow is critical for them. Even though they might give you an invoice that says payable within 14 days, the whole fact they haven't had to chase you and you have paid it instantly is absolutely critical for these individuals to make sure that they, they can run their life, and, like you say, and, and their family's financial security is, um, is there. And, and, like, and like you say, if you need someone quickly and there's two jobs to do, who are they going to go to? The person who pays them immediately or the one they're thinking, well, I might have to be chasing this in two weeks for the, the £100 um, invoice. Yeah, absolutely. So, the other thing I'd say I'd learned in terms of the, 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 the positives, the successes, is um, I've learned to be confident in being a contrarian investor. So okay, I, explain that a little bit. Okay, so if, if you're in stocks and shares, a contrarian investment is you buy funds that are underperforming and you buy into the unloved stocks and you avoid the ones that everyone else is buying. Because what, what pushes up a share value is popularity more than the actual underlying profitability of the business. It's mm -hmm. the same with property. There is a finite amount of property on the market at any one given time. If you can buy when everyone, if you are buying when everyone else is buying, you have competition and that pushes up prices. If you can buy when everyone else is selling, then you've got a choice as a landlord. So that play, I can give you two examples of that. So 2008, credit crunch, Lehman's collapses. We've got 90 grand to play with in the bank, which we've taken out of our domestic property. And if you remember, for those of you old enough, will remember that they literally thought one weekend the cash was going to stop flowing from the cash machines. Well, well you I, had queues, didn't you, outside Northern yeah. Rock, because they yeah. thought it would just go. Well, four days after that, my wife and I went to an auction house in London because there were a couple of properties we were interested in. And we went into this auction house. I won't tell you which one. It wouldn't be fair. But the room was set out to take at least 700 people. I counted 35 people in the room. Wow. And so when our property came up, um, we bought. So we bought a property that uh, it was a buy-to-let landlord had bought it. Um, he hadn't paid his mortgage. He'd been repossessed. Um, the tenant had been evicted. Um, and he'd paid 167 for it, brand new, two years ago. And we paid 65 at auction. That's, that's um, yeah, some, some big drops. And whilst I, I guess we have to put into context, that was 2008? Yep, 2008. 2008. Yeah, so, I mean there's some people who may be listening to this in 2008 who were probably still at school or all of that. The, the reality is the, the credit crunch imploded the world. Um, and it, it did, it turned off finance, it, for not just individuals, but for businesses and, and those sorts of deals, that, that sort of drop in property value um, was not uncommon I remember I was in Ipswich at the time working as a broker and there'd been properties repossessed down the marina there um, that I still don't think have made it back to the price that they were sold as new properties for that went for under 40, some under 30% of their value. So right. very similar to what you were, you were talking about there with that um, auction. And like you say, there was first five people there, it was stacked out to fit 700 and there was just a real fear of investing, but um, without giving too much away of your portfolio, do you still own that property? Yes, we still own that property. Uh, we've remortgaged it a couple of times. It's now back up to, it's probably mm, around the same kind of level that the guy paid for it in 2008, maybe a little bit less. Mm -hmm. um, it's, still, it's still not a new bill value, but it's, it's more than doubled on what I paid. Um, and, and of course, I'm not selling it and I'm getting a, in real terms, I'm getting a 14% yield on that property now. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's allowed you, as you say, you, you've remortgaged it. So it's allowed you access to, to the capital yeah. as it's appreciated to expand your portfolio. So being bold at a time when people were fearful has, um, has maybe, I think that's the one kind of characteristic I think that stands out of how you've built your portfolio. Um, that I've seen over the, the last kind of 15 years, um, last 10 years of, of knowing you. So 
yeah that that has a second example of that michael and which will be relevant for our listeners today is i think we're in another such a time now okay, okay. so so i'm in i'm in lincolnshire which is a largely rural area so uh, the, the issues around Brexit are very local here about immigration populations and a workforce. Those kind mm -hmm. of issues that I won't rehearse because we've all probably done them to death by now. But, but I've seen a real change in the market here in the last two years. Okay, So property prices are broadly flat, maybe a little bit weaker, but nothing significant yet. But what has happened, whereas three years ago when I was trying to buy a property, the age I'd be jostling with a dozen other people, three quarters of whom would be buy to letters, four or five would be first time buyers. I'd be jostling with them to get a viewing and a property and to be able to get in there and to make an offer normally at not far off the asking price. Mm -hmm. Today, a property comes on the market. It's probably coming on the market at five, 10% lower than it was three years ago. And what's certainly happening is I'm putting in offers at 10, 15% below their asking price and they're snapping my hand off. So I'm able to select properties. Now I'm not saying I'm selecting the most salubrious or the most sought after properties, but the really good uh, bread and butter buy to let two up, two downs that may not look pretty, but are produce a really good yield. I'm not seeing much competition for them. So that means I'm able to drive down the price drive up the yield mm -hmm. i'm buying from landlords i'm i tell you i'm buying from landlords michael who are walking away from seven eight percent yields because they're worried about tax and i'm and i'm thinking where else to for, for, you know tax even if you tax it at 40 percent, you're still getting a you're still getting four or five percent on top of any capital growth and you're gearing that so your return on capital employed is probably closer to 20 percent there yes. is not another asset class, even in today's market, there is not another asset class that is getting anywhere close to that. Yeah, and I was going to come on to this. So do you think that the kind of government's current stance, their current policy towards landlords, which has been quite militant, do you think that's what's driving the prices down and, and driving landlords out of the market? Or, or do you think it's something else? I, I definitely, I think it's a combination of, the, you know, the, the government introduced the policies they did on taxation. You remember it was George Osborne's final budget that introduced mm -hmm. it. And he introduced it before he thought uh, they were going to lose the referendum vote. So I think there are two major headwinds. One is what will be the impact of Brexit on the market and the market hates uncertainty. Any market hates uncertainty. And the second thing is these tax changes which are significant because we own all of our properties in joint names. We don't own them through a vehicle. So, you know, we are paying tax um, at the appropriate rate, at the marginal rate on our uh, portfolio. Mm -hmm. I think those two together are quite significant. But certainly on my tax return, um, I mean, my wife doesn't work. So we, you know, we use um, the HMIC allowance uh, quite well. So we uh, share the properties three quarters and a quarter. Um, yes, we've seen a tax. We've seen a tax increase. Um, our net profit line has probably seen an increase of three or four thousand pounds a year in tax. But frankly, the portfolio is generating a thousand pounds a month now, more than it was three years ago. So uh, the bottom bottom line is uh, a healthy portfolio with good return on capital employed. Yes. Yeah. And obviously, you. You've obviously talked a little about it there that you're keeping them in, in joint names with your wife. They're, they're, without getting into tax advice and things like that, there are additional costs quite significant to consider if you're, you're going to firstly move a portfolio into a limited company, SPV. Um, but also if you're, you're purchasing in, in one, those, those costs are becoming quite significant in increased rates, increased yep. fees, yep. Um, the likes of... Um, the independent legal advice fees yep. uh, needing now to be done by qualified solicitors, not licensed yep. conveyances. All of that adds up, especially if you're trying to drive down the cost of your finance overall. Yes. And so you're doing two yes. year deals, for example, you're then Ugh. experiencing these costs every two years, which you need to have a fairly large portfolio when you, you plug the numbers into the maths uh, for there to be an overall business proposition to, to go that route um and I think also speaking, speaking it's 50 50 at the moment of what people are doing and i would say there's there's two other points i'd make on top of that 
the first is that um, you, you mustn't let the, as my, as my, I've got a friend who's an accountant, he's not my accountant, but he says, you mustn't let the tax tail wag the dog. You know, uh, pe mm -hmm. I, I see people do things and spending money because the tail is wagging and, and, and the dog's dead. You know, you, you frankly should be running a business to be profitable. And you only, you know, you, you do have to pay tax. And it is a punitive rate, particularly if your portfolio is heavily geared. Um, the second thing I'd want to say to people is you've got to remember it, it is in the uh, gift of any chancellor at any point in the year, let alone his twice annual budgets, to simply turn around and close the loophole that says uh, private rented properties held in an SPV are exempt from these taxations. Yes. Yeah. Because he would, he could, he could, if you accept that he has sold to the public, that us nasty landlords are greedy and we're just going to make a level playing field. If he turns around and says, I've noticed all of these landlords are just buying their properties through uh, SPVs in order to circumvent paying their appropriate amount of tax, I'm going to close that loophole. He's going to have the likes of Shelter and the Labour Party cheering him on. And, and it appears to be a very, very good vote winner. So I would say anyone who builds it all, builds their portfolio now, either buying or transferring, on the assumption that that uh, tax treatment will not change, it is certainly taking a risk that I'd certainly want to encourage people to get some independent advice on. Yeah, it, it, it's difficult to, to expand on that conversation without getting into a kind of a advice situation. But obviously, from my experience, accountants are pushing people down the route of, of SPVs because they can only advise on the, the current legislation. They can't advise on what may happen in the future. But of course, if you take a step back from it, you are looking at a thousand to fifteen hundred pound accountancy fees each year. So the, the cynic in me would say, well, of course, an accountant's going to advise you to do this and potentially not have the conversations around. They could change the um, the rules on you. You need to be aware of that. So, so yeah. The the other thing that you brought up, um, and we've had some fantastic conversations on this, and one of the reasons um. <laughs> I'm quite happy to engage in this conversation with you is you have been one of the only people that I've managed to have what I would call a respectful conversation on this because it's quite a, it's creating quite a toxic environment in the UK, I think. So you've brought up, Brexit, Are we talking about um, so I'll blame that on you. Um, but how do you feel that, without taking this political? So let's try and keep it as apolitical yeah. as possible. How do you feel the Brexit scenario that we're in is having an effect on, on the property industry and, and the wider economy at the moment? Okay, so I, I would say, um, so trying to stay apolitical, though I'm sure people will read into it, uh, that there is clearly uh, Brexit and the issues around our failure to conclude the issue one way or the other is producing ongoing uncertainty in every area of business, no less so than the housing market. Okay. Mm -hmm. However, I, my, my position that I've taken is I'm buying property with a five to 10 year timeline. I'm not buying with a two to three year timeline. Yes. And the reality will be put bluntly. So I live in an area where 20% um, of the population are foreign nationals who cut cabbages for us. Crudely speaking, they cut cabbages and they bag lettuce. Okay. Mm -hmm. In we have seen a drop in migration recently, but when this all shakes out, someone is still going to have to cut the cabbages. Somebody is still going to have to bag the lettuces. Now, whether they've come from Eastern Europe, or whether they've come from Scotland, or whether they've come from Southeast Asia, we are going to have to import labour because we are a country that has always and continues to require labor, particularly at the more menial level and the more physically challenging work that our young people today seem unprepared to do. So ultimately, whether it's an East European, a Scot or a, um, a Southeast Asian, someone's gonna need to live in my houses medium to long term. And they're not gonna want to buy them. They're not gonna be able to afford to buy them. They're gonna want long term stable renting environments yes okay 
So, so how, how on the, the wider kind of broader picture then out, outside of Lincolnshire, do, do you see Brexit having, um, I mean, the current, let, let's talk about the current situation because we don't know whether we're leaving, staying or, or whatever. Yeah. Whilst we yeah. seem to be aiming towards leaving, there's no yeah. guarantee of that um, by any stretch. Yeah. How do you see this kind of uncertainty um, having an effect on the market at the moment? Well, let me, t- I, let me tell you a little bit of my background in Latin. In Latin, the word for crisis is the same word for opportunity. It comes from the same root word. It's crossroads. We're at a crossroads. And that means for those of us who are taking the long-term view, I want to suggest this is the best buying market that I've seen in probably not eight, nine years. Okay. Okay. Again, you have to be taking that long-term horizon. Uh, and there, you know, we also must be very, very careful that although you and I don't live in the real bubble of the southeast, um, it, it, there has never been a housing market in the UK. At best, there are probably six housing markets, depending on whether you're talking metropolitan, rural, southeast, northwest. So uh, I wouldn't want to make too many broad brushstroke comments, but I would say that in the short term, this uncertainty is driving. You've got buy to let landlords selling. And you've got first-time buyers who are saying, not sure, I'll just wait and see what happens. And I think once it's concluded, um, whichever way it's concluded, um, I think we will see a significant rebound in the pent-up housing demand. Because we still have a structural deficit in the UK. We are still producing 200,000 too few homes every single year. And that's been so for as long as I've been an adult. So we're talking a backlog now. Probably, I think Shelter reckon we're three to four million uh, properties behind what is required to to meet supply and demand. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, you're never catching that that level up if those numbers are accurate, are you? No. And there's probably, we are in relative terms, a small island and there's probably not that much space to build those and then continue to to expand i would i would think but well not not without a very significant change in the in the macro political orthodoxy of the uk where we still say that 98 percent of of planet uk we're not prepared to build on because it's greenbelt now i'm not making i'm not making a political comment there um, but what I'm saying is for successive generations, going back to the post-war settlement, uh, we have said we want to keep, you know, green belt is green belt. And there are one or two exceptions where we build new towns. Uh, I think about Thames Gateway and places like that. But broadly speaking, the, still 96% of the UK is unbuilt upon and isn't about to be allowed to be built upon. So your, your conjecture is correct. Uh, we're not going to catch that up. There's going to continue to be a structural um, shortage. Um, but again, you, you know, I'm assuming I'm talking to a, or I'm being listened to by an audience of people who say that property is the most illiquid asset. You've got 8% in and out entry and exit costs. So whatever I'm doing, I'm doing with a 5, 10, 15, 20 year horizon. Mm-hmm. And on those kind of horizons, um, Brexit will be something in the rear view mirror um, that will soon fade away. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and I say that, and I say that as a remainder, <laughs> <laughs> just to get that in. Yeah. So I've been asking a few people I've been having these conversations with, um, because these will go out in, in November, um, by the time they're yep. edited and all of that. So it will be interesting to see how wrong we are. Um, because I, I don't think anyone I've spoken to believes that they, they know what's going to happen. They have opinions. Where do you see the country being? Um, it may or may not be what you want it to, or the position you want it to be in, but where do you see the country being on the 1st of November? Oh, 1st November, that's easy. 1st November, we're still going to be in the European Union. I, I think 1st of January or 1st of March, I wouldn't be so sure. Um, okay. I, th- I think where we are, I would make... Um, I think we are a divided country. I mean, I grew up, I'm a proud Brit, but I grew up believing that one of the things that made Britain great was we were pragmatic. 
that we were moderate and that we were people who understood the value of compromise. I, I have been shocked to see, I, I, I never would have thought um, the left of the UK could put Jeremy Corbyn in charge. And I never would have thought uh, Boris de Feffel would ever be in charge of the Conservatives. I mean, we have extremists on both sides of the political wing at the moment. And I, I, I say a plague on both their houses. My hope is that in the medium term, once Brexit is settled, uh, both Boris and Jeremy will leave the political stage and hopefully some more moderate voices will come in who can, uh, whether, whether you want to call it one nation conservatism or, um, you know, a kind of more new Labour type of position, mm. a more centrist policy that can draw us back together because um, th these are not comfortable times in which we're living. No, I, I think you're very right. The... Brexit has um, it has divided the nation almost almost to fifty fifty, um, and I think that is the problem. Now you you know uh, a little bit about me and um, my my family. Obviously, my my wife's not English; she's um, yeah. from from Crimea in Ukraine. And uh, when they held a referendum on do they leave Ukraine um, to join Russia, the the result was much more resounding. And um, yes. they they don't. Um, they didn't take three years to sort it out. I think it took them about three weeks, according to my in-laws, um, for the currency to change, the banking systems to change and everything. Um, but it's much easier when you have an 80% turnout and a 90% vote leave, so yes. to speak. When you yes. have a, a broadly speaking 50-50 result, you really have to kind of, in the nicest way possible, pick which half of the country you want to annoy and which half are going to kick off the least? I, um, no, I disagree with you there, Michael. I'll tell you okay. why I disagree. So Daniel Hannum, not a man of my personal politics, but he, you know, he's the, he was the MEP and he'd always been a leaver. You know who I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Now, he, came, he went on a number of programmes not long after the Brexit vote had been concluded, I think a month or two later, and he said, look, I'm a firm believer in leaving. He says... But I recognise we broadly voted 50-50. And therefore, he said, what we need is to leave the European Union's political structures, but maintain the most intimate kind of relationship with Europe that we can possibly muster. And, and I think if more voices like his had been heard, um, I think we wouldn't be in this mess now. The problem was Theresa May decided she wanted to make Brexit a Tory party issue. And the truth is, the Tories are split on it, the Labour Party is split on it. The only party that isn't split on it is the Liberal Democrats, and they're too small to make any significant difference. Yeah, I, I think with the Lib Dems, they're, they're not split on it now. Um, Joe Swinson is in charge. I think if you look at their, their typical voters... I would say their voters are still split. Um, and looking at the stance that Joe Swinson has taken on behalf of the Liberal Democrats, I think she's looked at it and gone, we need to stick our neck out because there seems to be one here. Absolutely. Um, and if we say we will revoke, there are people who that will appeal to as much as there are people that it would appeal to Nigel Farage, for example, saying, well, if we were in power, we would leave the next day with no deal and cut all ties. And, and, and of course, she, she, she and Nigel are both very clever in that because they both know neither of them are going to be in power. What is interesting, though, if you, look at, if you look at the political spread betting, the odds on the Brexit party, how many seats they will win, is somewhere between zero and one, in all mm -hmm. seriousness. Yeah. If you look at Liberal Democrats they're being predicted to get somewhere between 35 and 60. Yeah, I now, think they will come back definitely in the next um, election for sure, probably back to the levels um, of when there was the coalition government. But at that point, uh, Joe Swinson will be able to say, well, we didn't win, so we can't revoke. But what we can do is clearly this is a mandate for saying we need to go back to the people or something along that ilk or Brexit light or I, I just some at some point, I mean, I, I hear your contention. You've got, you know, you're saying it's a binary choice. We've got to decide 
which half of the country were going to annoy the most. But that is not a typically British perspective. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uh, disrespecting your perspective, but that's not typically British. The typically British response is to say, okay, how can we take 90% of people with us? And I think we could have done something whereby we left politically, but remained economically. And most people would have gone, oh, that's all right, because we've got our Supreme Court now, and we've no longer got people telling us how many migrants we, we have to welcome in. That'll do for me. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't disagree with, with anything that you've said as I haven't, as we've had these conversations over well, the last couple of years since we, are, we voted um, leave. It, it's a, a real conundrum, both politically and, and socially to, to bring together. Um, and I would say the one thing, if anyone could say there's a positive of what's gone on at the moment, the way that UK politics and how it actually works rather than how maybe it's assumed that it works or how we would assume we would like it to work on, on one half of an argument um, has actually been brought in into the mainstream. Uh, I was talking to some people the other day whose who's, um, children are at university studying politics and they were saying yeah. there's not a better time in, in British history, in modern British history, to have been like studying that so there's a lot that's being learnt um for sure and i, I think no, and, and that's why i said at the beginning a plague on both their houses because the truth is i mean in my law degree i had to start study constitutional law i remember it, uh, wade and bradley most terribly boring book you could ever wish to read michael but what was very clear was that what we've done here is we have put two legitimate forms of democracy up against each other. We have put uh, a plebiscite democracy, i.e. The, the ballot uh, democracy, up against parliamentary democracy. Both of those models are equally valid. I don't think anyone could say the parliamentary model was broken or that the one man, one vote system is broken. The problem you've got is when you've got two legitimate forms of democracy giving us different answers. Yes, and and then they're they're playing um, against each other somewhat, and uh, that's when you you start to get the the language that is sometimes used um, within the public rather than I guess the conversations that have gone on in uh, Parliament that obviously they they don't see maybe what you have just explained. They just see well we voted. Why isn't that being enacted therefore you're not doing what the public said and then because uh, and I, I say it's very very carefully um because not everyone is as articulate as someone who could maybe present sky news or be a bbc political correspondent words such as treason start to get used and, and things like that because that's yeah. the public's way of articulating how they're feeling yeah. about what's going on yes. and those words may not be technically accurate but it does go to show that the underlying kind of emotions that are there in in the public for sure uh, absolutely i i don't i don't doubt that and uh, one of the things i've you know, to bring this conversation full circle one of the reasons why i've enjoyed talking with you michael and why i've made a point of keeping friends who are leavers is because we've all by and large uh, crawled into our own echo chambers where we're hanging around with people who voted the same as us and believe the same as us and all that does is develop this identity politics this tribalism that means we're not going to come back together and i think there's you know if you ask me as a proud brit my, my worst fear of what will happen here is we'll leave the union at the price of breaking up the uk yeah, which is a, a very um, possible risk now, um, because when you do start to put people into um, boxes, so to speak, of how they voted, Scotland voted to remain, Northern Ireland yep. voted to remain. I mean, and, and they're not things, especially Scotland, there, there's, a lot, there's always been this um, SNP kind of talk and, and <laughs> political line but with northern ireland that obviously that's as complex as it could get really um, yeah but that's not something that should just be swept aside either um we are a united kingdom um 
but there's very different cultures and and political aspects within that united kingdom as there is within the wider eu as well well i think it's interesting i mean which of us knew i certainly didn't until recently i didn't know that the conservative party wasn't called the conservative party did you no the the conservative and unionist party exactly you know they're the conservative and unionist party i mean uh, i i continue to be amazed that uh in the same way, I never would have thought, I never would have thought a unionist party would take the hard line it has done on, on Brexit. At the same time, though, I never thought I would see a Conservative Chancellor uh, introduce the tax regime that he did for buy-to-let landlords and the impact it's had on the private rented sector. Um, you know, I mean, you would have expected it of Labour, possibly, and even the Liberal Democrats, but Conservatives for the last 20 years have always understood that the PRS was an essential characteristic of the UK housing market in our flexible workforce. Mm. Yeah, you imagine George Osborne had some very challenging conversations with his buddies down the drinking clubs, didn't you? It's like, what have you just done to us? Um, it, it well, is... it, it, you know, the reality is one of the, I mean, I have some tenants who stay for 10, 15 years. I've got one tenant who's on year 13 of their contract, but I have a significant number who come and want to rent and when their job moves or they get a promotion um they love the fact that they can give two months notice and move on mm-hmm. if you know they don't want to own yet um i mean yes they all want to own one day but they don't want to, you know a lot of people under 35 are still building their careers and actually the flexibility of being able to up sticks and leave is really quite important it's it's interesting you bring that up actually because there's a lot of um if you look at online at a lot of the the property gurus uh, particularly the american ones um so you're kind of um robert kiyosaki your, your grant um cordone though those kind of um people they're very much a don't buy a house to live in you should rent for that mobility for that flexibility um and of course buy property to to let out and, and make sure that you're, you're investing in property, but you, you should rent rather than own your, your own home. And um, we deal with a lot of people who are renters for that reason. They want the flexibility, but they have property portfolios as well. So, so yeah, the, the government to some extent need to, to get a better idea of what the public really want for sure. Absolutely. And I think, you know, things they do around driving up quality in the rental market will all help that. Because if we went to, if we looked at uh, countries that we would seek to emulate, for example, Germany, they have a huge long-term rental market where renting is in no way seen as inferior to buying. The quality of property is is significantly higher. Um, there are long-term manageable rents. Um, and I think... Uh, that helps the German economy retain its flexibility that it needs around its manufacturing workbase. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, and I, I guess it's always been it's it's like that British British person's um, home is their castle thing, isn't it? it? It's within our our culture that you should you should own that castle rather than, than rent it to some extent. Extent. Well, um, I, th- I think I think the time you want to own that castle is when you're 55 and heading towards retirement because there is clearly something about having security and uh, when you're no longer in the active workforce uh, wanting to be able to have a secure roof over your head. Um, but but it, it's, I think there are other investment vehicles and we need to move away from this, I need to own a house of 21. Mm. Although... Although, having said that, we need to recognise, I remember reading an article on this more eight, ten years ago now, for the last 800 years, property prices have always gone up. On a 25-year rolling cyclical basis, property prices have always outstripped inflation by at least 1.5%. And over 800 years, that's a heck of accumulation. Yeah, I mean, over that that period of time, for sure. And the kind of data that I've seen is if you take it from post-Second World War, so 1950 onwards, um, average UK house prices are 50 to 60, 60 to 70, have always doubled every decade. Um, And 
I didn't think it was really possible because of obviously income needs to go up significantly. Um, but it's on track to kind of do that 2010 to, to 2020 as well. Um, it will be very, very difficult to double 2020 to 2030 uh, without some form of mechanism to make that affordable for sure. So if average house prices go from 250 to 500, but average salaries go from 26,000 to 30,000 in that time, you, you've got a bit of a problem. Well, that's the issue that the government has over this magic problem, the, the long-term problem we have over productivity. I mean, the only reason why wages won't double over the period 2020 to 2030 is because productivity won't double from 2020 to 2030. If productivity doubles, then so will wages. I mean, they, they, you, know, you can only be paid what you produce effectively. Mm-hmm. If, I produce five, if I produce five nails a day, I get paid in, I get paid two nails if I produce 10 nails a day I get paid four nails and so on and so forth yes yeah so some some interesting times for sure um, so I think that's probably a, a good point to to wrap this up William it's been a okay. really really interesting conversation as it always is with you um, I appreciate we've had a few technical issues along the way but the chats with you over the last few years have been brilliant so I've really looked forward to this conversation and it's kind of lived up to to everything i expected it would be and i'm sure the people listening are are going to enjoy it as well if you enjoyed this podcast you can find us and support us on instagram at the real michael webb and on facebook at the michael webb podcast thank you very much and we will see you again soon